Good morning. My name is Roger. I'm one of the pastors here at St. Peter's, and I'm going to be preaching to you today uh, on our text from Mark chapter 2. Now, in the context of Mark's gospel, the passage that we're looking at this morning is kind of linked up with the passage that comes right before it and also the passage that comes right after it. Uh, On the surface, these three passages pertain to three different things. The first one is about hospitality, who you can eat with. The second one, what we're looking at today, is about fasting. And then next week, it's about Sabbath and how to keep Sabbath. So they seem to be about three different things, but in fact, I want to argue to you that they're all about the very same thing. This morning, Jesus is making another statement in a series about what a true connection with God looks like and about what real spirituality involves. And as we'll see in just a moment, Jesus shows himself to be quite distinct and different from the other options on the market. Now we're going to unpack these verses this morning in Mark in a threefold format. We'll begin by looking at the first thing Jesus says, and then we'll move on to look at the second thing that he says, and then lastly we'll consider how the first thing fits into the second thing in order to bring us a great insight. So, fairly straightforward. If you'd at least keep your brains at about 75% capacity, it should be enough to get you through this morning. And if you would, keep your finger on the text uh, so that you can follow along as we go through it. Okay, the first thing Jesus says, look with me at verses 18 through 20. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will not fast in that day. So what we've got here is a little report about Jesus' crew. They're not fasting like the other religious movements of that time. His disciples aren't doing the done thing in terms of serious, earnest spirituality at that time. As you know, Jesus was kind of like a rabbi, and he's always talking to people about how to be close to God. And so the fact that his disciples, that they're not fasting, that would have raised some eyebrows. In those times, anyone who was religiously serious had some sort of regimen of fasting, period. That's what we learn in verse 18. John's disciples fast. The Pharisees fast, and everyone in those groups fasts like clockwork. Fast, fast, fast. They've got a a regulation for fasting. But not with Jesus and his crew. Why? That's the big question that we should be asking ourselves. I've almost cut my finger off this week, so it's hard to turn the page. Now, we we need to understand several things. Uh, if we're going to get our minds around Jesus' conscientious objection to fasting, okay? In the first place, the fasting habits at this time had gotten a bit out of hand, okay? If you read the Old Testament, you'll learn that God does command His people to fast sometimes. Fasting has a place in biblical spirituality. But in the Bible, God only commands fasting one time a year, right? That's all. So it's part of spirituality, but it does not dominate. Now with the Pharisees and the others at that time, it seems that the opposite had become the norm. They had regularized weekly fasting. 
In fact, Luke's gospel, when it talks about this, says that they were at fasting at least two times a week, like clockwork. And so what they had done was added a lot of things to God's requirements, and not just in the realm of fasting. We learned last week they would added some things in the realm of hospitality. Who's allowed to come into your house and eat with you? There's a lot of people that aren't, according to them. And the next week we'll see that they added a whole bunch of things to Sabbath keeping. On Sabbath you can't do this, 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 this. Adding a lot of things. The best image that came to my mind as I was reflecting on this was of a barnacle-covered dock. Okay? The Pharisees, along with certain other groups, they had added so many things to God's original simple command that you could hardly recognize the original thing anymore. Like that. Just like seasoned bureaucrats, their favorite pastime was coming up with all sorts of new policies and regulations, complex systems that they could be master over, which allowed them to feel in control and spiritually elite. Well, sweet Jesus has come to cut back and simplify. Fasting has become mechanistic. It's gotten out of hand, and it's giving people false ideas about what God really wants. Now, in the second place, it also seems that fasting in Jesus' time had become marked by a pretty dour, forlorn, sorrowful, Scottish-type attitude, okay? Jesus himself talks about this in Matthew 6, 16. He says, when you fast, don't look gloomy like those who disfigure their faces while they fast. I don't know what it looked like, but evidently it was quite gloomy, okay? What was that about? Why were people all gloomy and forlorn with fasting? In order to understand that, you need to know why they were fasting, why people like the Pharisees were fasting. As fasting was used by the Pharisees, it was used because they perceived that God was absent, far away, and they wanted God to be present, and so they thought if they fasted a lot, they could accelerate His return. That's the purpose of fasting. So there was sort of a gloominess and a sorrowness about it. It made for a rather somber spirituality, and so therefore being part of God's people, being religiously serious, was not exactly a joyful and happy affair. And this leads us to the third reason that Jesus opposes the type of fasting of the Pharisees, that regulated, perfunctory, mechanistic fasting, because the setting has changed. The setting has changed. God is no longer absent and distant, but in fact, He's present and he's close enough to touch. And so the reason the Pharisees were fasting, it doesn't make sense anymore. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 19 when he refers to himself as the bridegroom. That's a not-so-subtle way of saying, I am God. Now, in the Old Testament, those of you who have been reading the Bible this year will know this, God is often comparing himself to a bridegroom. That's a big image he uses. Listen to these words from Isaiah, these glowing words from one of the old prophets. You shall be called, my delight is in her, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man rejoices over a young woman, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. The bridegroom has arrived. God is here. There is a wedding, and you don't fast at a wedding any more than you would have a long face after you won the lottery. It just doesn't make sense. God is here, and so fasting is expired, at least the type of the Pharisees. It is incongruous with the new setting. In fact, it's downright out of place, because now it's time for celebration and for wine and rejoicing. 
That's what Jesus is saying here. And let me give you a bit of application at this point before we move on to the second thing Jesus says. What's the present significance of these, this teaching about fasting for us, right? Let me say first what it does not mean. It does not mean that fasting is wrong for a Christian or that fasting has no place in Christian life. Alistair just invited you to fast for a day, right? Is he disobeying Jesus? No. That's not really what Jesus is saying here. In fact, if Jesus were saying that, he would be contradicting himself because elsewhere in the New Testament, he talks about fasting. And when he does, guess what he doesn't say? He doesn't say not to fast. He just talks about how to fast, how to fast. And so therefore, Jesus himself takes it for granted that fasting still has some place in Christian spirituality and Christian discipleship. Now, what does he mean about fasting? What does it mean for us today? I think this, to put it simply. When it comes to fasting, the basis for our fasting is never to be overly formalized and fixed and regulated and mechanistic. That's not to be the basis. The basis, rather, is to be what is appropriate at a given moment. What is congruous with the situation of the church or of the circumstances of a particular Christian at a given moment. Look at verse 20. Listen to what Jesus says here. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then on that day there will be no fasting. There will be fasting, excuse me. There will be fasting. What does that mean? Jesus is kind of talking about his crucifixion here, and he's saying that at that moment, fasting will be appropriate. It will be appropriate at that moment. And this little quip here in verse 20 reminds us that there will still be moments when fasting makes sense, when it is fitting That's why we read a lot about fasting in the book of Acts. You can't get through it without reading about fasting. Fasting is the church's response to perceived danger. It's the church's first way of preparing for mission work. What do they do? They fast and pray. And I think so too for us at certain moments when it's fitting. We were at an an Anglican meeting of all the ministers last week, and, and our bishop talked about a moment when they fasted. The bishops fasted last year. It was in the month of June. It was the last week of June, and so therefore the fiscal year was about to close. And our denomination was in the red, considerably. And so they set a time, set aside a time of fasting and prayer to pray for God's provision, and by the time July 1st came, things had broken even. That's a good reason to fast. And in our own lives too, right? Fasting can be a wonderful tool for self-control, and you better believe Jesus cares about that. So there is a place for fasting. Now, all this talk about fasting is probably making some of you hungry. So let's move along so we can get you to lunch. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. Let's read these here. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new and the old, and it's all made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does that, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine gets destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. Now, if you're a bit uncertain about what these two illustrations actually mean, don't worry. You're not alone. I asked Alistair this week, and he didn't know either. Now, the first of those two illustrations is particularly elusive to me. Okay, As a man... I am not that familiar with the arts of needlecraft and stitchery, okay? 
I am pleased to report, however, that now that I am married, there is someone in the house who can enlighten me. What's a wife for, after all? Just kidding. Just kidding. Now, I bet some of you are ready to pounce on me right now for that statement because you think I'm a domestic traditionalist or some sort of neo-Victorian. So hold your presumptuous horses. Just because my accent sounds a bit like George W. Bush does not mean that I hold the values that you associate with him. So would you kindly stop profiling me? I want you to know I was a Boy Scout. And I did a merit badge that required me to use a needle and thread, and I even made my own pair of trousers once. <laughs> so now that we've dealt with your stereotypical prejudice stereotyping, can we get back to what Jesus said, please? Okay. These two parables are making the same point. They're making the same point. And they overlap with what Jesus just said about fasting, but they go really far beyond it as well. And what we've got here is an essential message about what Jesus means, what he's all about. We've got sort of a Twitterish manifesto about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus. Now, if you had lived 2,000 years ago and you heard these two little parables, you would have known what they meant immediately. But in our day and age, we don't. So let me briefly unpack these. I had to do some work on this because I had no idea what they meant. If your cloak has a rip in it or your shirt has a rip in it and you repair it with a piece of cloth that's new and therefore not washed and used and shrunk, you sew it on, when you wash the whole thing together, that new piece of cloth is going to shrink and pull it all in, and it's going to cause even worse rippage in the original garment. So everything's ruined. The new cloth can't go with the old garment. And then with regard to wine, Jesus is saying the same thing in a slightly different way. It seems that in those times, people stored wine in these leather pouches. They were made of animal skins. And then you put wine in there, and it continued to ferment. And if any of you are in here are brewers, you will know that when things ferment, a gas is emitted, and so expansion occurs. So if you put fermenting wine into an old, dry leather skin, what's going to happen? Bye-bye leather pouch, bye-bye new wine, and that is very sad, especially if it's Malbec. Right? <clears throat> that was a hint about what to get your pastor for Christmas. So, okay. So what's the basic point of these two little parables? Jesus is not here. He has not come to offer a slightly different, slightly unique, slightly improved religion. He's not coming on the scene with a repackaged version of the same thing. If the Pharisees are Toyotas, Jesus is not a Lexus, because everyone knows that a Lexus is just a dressed-up Toyota. Jesus is not just another type of chicken nugget, a new shape for the same goat meat. Okay, <laughs> Friends... The Jesus Project, which the New Testament calls the gospel, is not just quantitatively different from the other things on offer. It is qualitatively different. That's for you statisticians. That's what these two parables are saying. Jesus isn't just bringing an, an alternative. To put it more accurately, he's bringing the end of religion, at least as it's been known. And to put it in our, in our own speak, Jesus is a game changer. He's a game changer. Now, I know that what I've just said, what Mark's saying, these are audacious claims, and some of you might be thinking to yourself, hmm, not so sure about that. Maybe Jesus is just desperately trying to show that he's unique, while in fact he's just a, a, a new brand of the same old detergent, right? just another type of soda with a new label, more of the same old, same old. Well, Mark thinks the answer to that is no. 
And I agree with Mark. And if you're open to that claim, I want to encourage you in the context of this sermon series on Mark to give careful consideration and reflection and try to suspend any stereotypes you have to the fact that that claim may just be true. That's precisely what I want to do with you right now in a small way as we move on. If you've been resting your eyes, now's the time to stretch them open and pay extra careful attention. How does the first thing Jesus said fit into the second? How do these these two things connect? When we see how they connect, we get this great insight, and this is what I want to share with you. When we read them in concert, what we get is a fundamental reorientation about the way that we think about God. And we see that what Jesus is wanting to do is totally, totally reconfigure our spirituality. For all you academics, he's, he's doing what's called a paradigm shift. These two parables are telling us that Jesus, the Jesus Project is not just like the other shows in town. And the reference to the wedding and the bridegroom in the first verses is telling us how it's not different. Now, I, can, I want to make two statements to characterize the how, how it's not different, how it's, how it's not just like the other shows in town. Number one, Jesus is ushering in a spirituality that is astoundingly inclusive. And number two, he's also ushering in a spirituality that is radically exclusive. Astoundingly inclusive, radically exclusive. Okay, Jesus' inclusivity. Now, many of you, no doubt, are familiar with the BBC show Downton Abbey. It traces the life and times of a 19th, 20th century aristocratic family called the Crowleys, a.k.a. Lord and Lady Grantham. They live in a stunning palace. They have a fleet of servants, and life is marked by elegance and grace and sumptuous food and feast, despite being in England. I want you to imagine now that you get yourself an invitation to the Grantham supper table. Quite the invite. Prestigious, splendid cuisine, fine wine, leisurely, festive, filling. That's the type of invitation you don't get every day, and it would probably be welcomed, unless you're Welsh. Now, the big night arrives. You make your way down the winding road of the estate. You're greeted at the door in stately fashion. You have some sherry in the ante room. Then a little bell rings, and it's time to dine, and the doors open, and there's a banquet beyond compare on the table, and there's a chair with your name on it. You sit down. You enjoy the aroma. You accept both red and white wine, and you prepare to gobble up that starter. But then your heart stops. You look down to get your fork, and there are four of them. Not to mention an array of spoons and knives and glasses and other utensils you've never even seen in your life. What do you use? When do you use it? How do you even use some of these things? And everyone's looking at you and watching and testing and waiting. Do you belong? All of a sudden, you feel like an outsider. You don't want to be where you are anymore. You don't want to be in that moment anymore. You just want to be at white spot with one simple fork. In a nanosecond you have become aware of the exclusivity in the air, that you don't belong here. You've been invited, but now you've been told in so many words that you're not fitting in. You can't keep up. You're excluded. That is precisely what the Pharisees' mode of religion and their spirituality 
was doing at Jesus' time. That is it. Their spirituality, the spirituality of the Pharisees was duplicitous. That's your SAT word for the day. That just means it was sort of two-faced. Say one thing, do another. On the one hand, they were telling everybody that God really wanted a relationship with them, that God had invited them to his banquet table. That's what the Old Testament says. But on the other hand, they had a complex codes of holiness and spirituality patterns that made the masses, the regular people, feel very excluded, made them feel like outsiders to God, left them spiritually constipated. Okay? So God's own generosity, God's own welcome to us had been obscured by all these traditions. But there's something more I want you to see here, and this was profound when I came across it this week. All those codes of holiness and spirituality patterns, they had a particularly devastating effect on the not-so-well-off of Roman Judea, which is to say the vast majority of people. In order to keep up with the Pharisees' standards, you needed to be someone who had some disposable income and a fair amount of leisure time. And so their spirituality didn't adapt so well to the working poor and to the regular masses of Judea. Because if you're living from hand to mouth and you're chronically malnourished, then religious fasting can become quite a burden. You fast every day and not by choice. That was their spirituality. Now, I'm not generally a fan of B-grade movies from the 90s, but there is one that seems to have lodged itself in my memory. It's called Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. In this cinematic gym, Mom has to go to Australia for a while. She leaves a babysitter in charge with some specific instructions for the four kids. But not too long after Mom leaves, the babysitter croaks, and the kids are left with those instructions, which they begin to ignore. And by the end of the film, there's a huge party at the house. And it's in that moment that Mom shows back up unexpectedly, and she hardly recognizes things. The first words out of her mouth to the eldest daughter are, young lady, inside now, what the fettuccine is going on. That's what she says. So too with Jesus. God has come back, and things are not the way they're supposed to be. In fact, everything has gotten mixed up, and things are terribly awry. The religion of the Pharisees seemed to do one thing well, ensure that most people felt excluded from God. You know what? There's a shameful irony in that. Because the God that the Pharisees claimed to represent just happens to be a God, at least according to the Bible, who has a special concern for people who are poor, who are marginalized, and who are alienated. And so when God shows up, that's Jesus, he's not pleased. He's going to make some serious changes. He's going to set the record straight, and we're going to find out that God is not nearly as elitist and exclusive as we humans tend to be. How do we know? Look at verse 19. Jesus is talking about his mission and his project as being like a wedding. What he's saying is this. If you want to understand my spirituality, it's more like a wedding feast than anything else. That's what he's saying. You're invited. You're wanted. A good time's going to be had by all, and I am so glad that you're here. So that's how a wedding is. We invite everyone. We cast that invitation net far, even to those annoying and irritating relatives. Come as you are. If you stink, we've got deodorant. If you have old clothes, we've got some new ones, and they will make you look radiant. 
If you've got lots of baggage, well, we can help you with that too. In this, Jesus is telling us that his spirituality is radically inclusive and non-elitist. He doesn't talk about 10 steps that you have to do to be in. He doesn't talk about having to perfectly adhere to a moral code to be accepted and loved by God. He talks about a wedding. He talks about a wedding. There's food, there's new wine, and it's for everyone, and it doesn't matter which cup you use. Just show up. Love is in the air. I will be the first to admit that sometimes the church, as with Judaism in Jesus' own time, has lost sight of the message here. Sometimes we Christians aren't really in the wedding mindset. In fact, sometimes Christian spirituality reminds me more of a funeral or a job application process, not a wedding. I think Mark Twain really pins the tail on the donkey when he says, if Christ were here, there's one thing he would not be, a Christian. There's a little bit more truth in that statement than we care to admit. But here's the good news. It doesn't have to be that way, and it shouldn't be that way. The buck stops with Jesus, and do you hear what he's saying right now? Do you hear what he's saying right now? I want to segue now and talk about the radical exclusivity of Jesus. And no doubt most of you, being good progressive Vancouverites, you like the non-exclusive, inclusive nature of Jesus' message here. Me too. It fits well into the great tolerance narratives of our age. But we need to be careful about painting Jesus as one of us. It's always a risk. And in this vein, there's something else we need to see. We need to see that the vision of connection with God, the vision of spirituality that comes from Jesus is also, in a sense, radically exclusive. That's what we learn from the fact that Jesus calls himself a bridegroom right in the middle of this passage. What's he saying with that description? He's saying this, if you want to know who I am, it's more like a bridegroom than anything else. What does he mean by that? I think at least three things. So let's stay with me. We're going to unpack this in closing. And for those who watch the minutes, closing means seven or eight more minutes. Jesus' spirituality first, and he called himself a bridegroom. Jesus is saying his spirituality does not revolve around religious systems and rituals and regulations. It centers more on relationship. See, according to Jesus, being connected with God isn't built on religious practices. Rather, it's rooted in personal, intimate, familiar love and trust. That's where it starts, just like a wedding, just like a wedding. So by comparing himself to a bridegroom, Jesus is asking us to see and understand spirituality through a totally new pair of glasses. When we hear the word God, Jesus wants the first thing in our minds to be love, trust, intimacy, not regulations and rules. That's not the first thing that should come to our mind when we hear the word God, according to Jesus. That's a big change for some of us. It was a big change for me not too long ago. How do you think about God? And what's the source of your impressions about God? Is it Jesus? Jesus right here? Or is it someone else or something else that might falsely claim to speak for Jesus? I want to ask that. I want to lay that question for you, not just if you're a visitor, but also if you're a Christian. What informs your understanding of who God is? Second thing Jesus means when he talks about being a bridegroom. He means that he wants us to know that when it comes to God, we are more cherished 
than we can imagine. God looks at us the way that a husband dotes on his wife. So when God thinks of you, let me put it this way, when God thinks of you, his heart rate increases. When God bumps into you into the hall, he's a wreck. When God says to you, when God sees you walking past, he thinks to himself, good job, God, good job. Look at that beautiful thing I made. When you're away from him, he feels dejected. God is smitten. Or as they say back in my homeland, South Carolina, he's plum tickled to death. Knowing that you are loved and wanted and adored, that's the heart of Christian spirituality according to the Bible. Jesus knows all too well what we can forget and what those Pharisees seem to forget. And we'll say this slowly so you catch it. It is not working to be loved that heals our hearts and transforms our lives. It is being loved and becoming increasingly aware of that that heals our hearts and transforms our lives. Did you catch that? That's new wine. It can't go in old wineskins. Now, given that most of you in the room today, myself included, are millennials, I suspect that the relationality and the love that Jesus is talking about here, they resonate well with us. We tend to be pretty anti-institution. We don't like systems. We want everyone to be loved. Jesus is our man. Except this. Jesus is talking about relationship and love with God. He's also talking about a form of love that involves exclusive commitment. It's not love in a generic sense. It's love that's based on an exclusive commitment. And that's the third thing that Jesus means when he calls himself a bridegroom. He's saying, I want your total commitment to me. Why does Jesus want that? Why does he want all of us? Total commitment, exclusive commitment. Because he really cares about having a loving relationship with us. Not a lust, not a fling, not a contractual relationship. A relationship of love. And Jesus knows that the great precondition for true love, the type of love that we all want but that we don't always experience, is vulnerability. Deep love and trust, they grow out of vulnerability. And vulnerability comes from being exclusively committed. I, too, watch Brene Brown. Friends, I think God invented marriage teach us something about what a real relationship with him looks like. Any love that's worth its salt is marked by exclusive commitment. You wouldn't marry someone. I got married a few weeks ago. That wouldn't have happened if we got to the altar and right before, while we were taking our vows, we, we gave, Cindy and I gave each other a list of caveats. I'm, I'm going to marry you, but only if you don't do this and this and this, or only if I can still have this on the side and that on the side. If, if we were in that situation, you would say, no, we're not going to get married today. Well, God's like us in that sense. He wants exclusive, wholehearted commitment. Jesus wants the real thing. He wants the real thing. He wants us to taste the real thing. This is just Jesus' way of saying, no, you may not just sleep with me. You must marry me. You must marry me. Now, for some of us, this ultimatum from Jesus, this exclusive desire for exclusive commitment, it may make us wince a little bit. We like relationship, we like love, but we don't like exclusivity. We don't like to commit, to really commit. We struggle to do that, whether it's with an organization, whether it's with a person, and certainly when it comes to God. We prefer to have attachments that are permanently attenuous. We like to 
row the boat up to the dock and moor it, but we leave the knot deliberately loose so we can get in the boat and go away as soon as we want to, quickly. Now, the sad truth is this. We have become quite clever in convincing ourselves that exclusivity and commitment are not really necessary for whole and healthy lives and for true love. But that's a lie. And it is a lie that is pumped into us at about the same rate as Americans pump gas into their cars, which is to say, a lot. I'm an American. I can say that. We guzzle it up, trying to convince ourselves that we can have what we most want, what we most need, which is profound and stable and deep, vulnerable, trusting love. We can have that without ever limiting our options, without any ounce of exclusivity and commitment, without any permanent allegiance. As much as we want that to be true, it's not. If you need proof, just talk to a marriage and family counselor. They'll tell you that the attempt to experience love apart from exclusivity and commitment tends to wreak havoc. It hurts hearts and it scars self-image. Jesus is saying the same thing. I want to complete your life. I want to do that in a life-transforming way, but I need you to be totally with me. And I need you to know that I am totally with you. I'm totally with you. And when Jesus says that, I am totally with you, it's not just a sentiment. It's something he does. It is something he demonstrates. Most of you probably know where Mark's gospel is leading. It's leading to a hill outside of Jerusalem on a Friday afternoon and to a last breath that cried, it is finished. It is finished. What was finished? That's God's demonstration of his whole, exclusive, permanent, irreversible commitment to us. It's God saying, I'm all in. I am all in. And only after he does that does he ask us to do the same thing. It's always harder to go first. It's always harder to be the first person to say, I love you. So God does it first. God does it first. And then he says, only then does he say, now give yourself to me. And I want you to give yourself to me without fear, because you know for certain that I'm not going anywhere, and that I will always work for your good, and that I will never leave or forsake you. When you taste this reality, and I want to taste more of it in my own life, you'll begin to understand why happiness is the prevailing theme of Christian life, why Christian life should be a life of gladness. Not because it's a life free from struggle, because it's a life lived by people who know that they are loved. What a beautiful thought. And it can be a reality because the bridegroom has arrived.